Jericho Road is a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church. It's a Sunday school class that happens at 9.30 on Sunday mornings, and you're welcome to join us. These days, we're studying the world of Jesus, and we hope to get you thinking about old stories in a new way. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Jericho Road, the world of Jesus. We're so glad you're here today. And if you're listening on the podcast or dialing in on video, we want you to send your questions to rwebster at saint-lukes.com. If you're listening, spell out saint, rwebster at saint-lukes.com. We'll try to incorporate your questions into future episodes. And we just want to make this a little more interactive with you at home. You know, in past episodes, we've been looking at the world of Jesus and it's getting us to look back, back to the beginning of the Bible. We're trying to use Jesus as a lens through which we understand the Hebrew scriptures. Well, this morning, I want to do something a little different and look at Jesus as a lens through which we see forward as well, how the world of Jesus can form an ethic for here and for now. And we can find this ethic in the letters of Paul in the backs of our Bibles. So I want to just take this episode and go forward into the future just a little bit and see if we can find the world of Jesus in a new place. Okay, first we'll start with the story. I want to show you a little map that I drew. I never can find maps that I like, and I know I probably don't draw this one very well, but if you just look at the the red arrow and start on the right and just simply move on the right and just kind of move to the left, you can trace Paul's second missionary journey. It works like this. Around the year 51... A Jewish Roman businessman named Paul made the second of three business trips around the eastern Mediterranean, and he landed in Corinth. Okay, now let's just un- let's unpack what I just said. Okay, let's, let's think about what I just said to you. First of all, it's around the year 51, so this trip happened early, less than two decades after the resurrection of Jesus. This early in the story. This is, this is still within eyewitnesses of the event, people who knew Jesus, uh, people who remember what he said. It's first thing. Second thing, I called St. Paul a businessman. Remember that and hang on to this. By tradition, we were always taught that Paul was a tent maker, but it's more likely that he was more of, of something like a businessman, a tent rep, if you will. It has been noted that Paul knew more people with connections in these Roman cities, and by this time of the Roman Empire, it was at the height of its size, and you had these cities that were connected by roads like a string of pearls, all trading with each other, all doing business with each other, and Paul knew a a disproportionate amount of people with wealth and connectivity, for instance, Priscilla and Aquila, who he would meet in Corinth and start a movement. He was a businessman. I also said that Paul was a Jewish person. He was also a Roman person, which means that he had two names, Paul and Saul. He didn't abandon one for the other when he took on a new religion. Paul was always a Jewish person, but also because he was a Roman citizen, this is something that also indicates that his family had some money because that was expensive to do when you weren't born a Roman. Also, let's unpack the fact that Paul was the right person at the right time. He was also an educated Jewish person with a prep school education, which means that he could read Hebrew when most of the world would read Greek, which would be very, very important in interpreting the Hebrew scriptures and making a message for the waiting world. Finally, he made a a loop through the eastern Mediterranean, which is a Roman world hungry, hungry for connection with God and with each other. 
Okay, well, that's the story, and this is going to get us now uh, to those little letters in the backs of our Bibles. Let's look at Corinth for a minute. I'll show you a slide. This is the Temple of Apollo in Corinth. You know, the ancient ruins of Corinth are fascinating today. It's a green field with stuff just coming up out of the ground. And they've got a museum there that's basically an open-air cinder block building. It looks like something uh, at, at the lower camp of Camp McDowell, if you will. I mean, it, it's literally just a, a simple little building full of priceless antiquities that belong to Corinth alone. Corinth was a very wealthy town, and you can see it from the ruins. Uh, this Temple of Apollo is really only a fraction of what still remained, uh, but you can see right there it was pretty grand and there were plenty more of those. Corinth was actually destroyed about 150 years before Jesus' birth, but then it was rebuilt by the Romans as a, as a super port. It sat on an isthmus, a little like Panama, so that you actually had two ports which you could get two tariffs or two duties, uh, right, two ways to pay taxes, and they were loaded. Also, Corinth was a pact, just like every other Roman city. I want you to think more of um, Bangladesh and less about Manhattan. So if you want a visual, we could take the village around St. Luke's Church, which is a village of maybe 10, 15,000 people, and put 100,000 into it, into the same square miles, if you will, and this will give you an idea about Corinth, which means that everybody knows everybody's business, and this is going to, um, this is going to have an impact on what we learn today. But this also is the world where Paul would have a new idea to take hold. Paul called this idea that he took from city to city on these trips that he enjoyed, he called this idea the gospel. I want to show you a slide because it's got three things to it that make up the gospel, grace, time, and family, and you might want to write these down. This, these words are superimposed over a street in Corinth. He had this idea called the gospel, and it was almost like a spark on, on a waiting on kindling, if you will. It was a spark on kindling that would start a flame, and it was made, made up of grace, time, and family. And I want to unpack these three as we think about it. First of all, grace. Grace. Paul had an idea that he had been saved by grace. Paul knew that he was a man with blood on his hands, but God wanted him anyway, and this means grace. Okay, when you talk about Paul in the Bible, you need to remember a couple things. First of all, the book of Acts is about Paul, and then the letters in the back are by Paul. So you're going to get a story about Paul in the book of Acts. We're told uh, that in Acts, Paul was converted in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus. But if you read Acts carefully, I believe Paul was actually converted in Acts chapter 7 when he held the coats of men who murdered a young man named Stephen with rocks outside the temple gate. Stephen and Paul were remarkably similar people or similar backgrounds. They both were Greek-speaking Jewish people from somewhere else. They were both highly educated and they both had money. But Stephen had a freedom that Paul didn't have. And I believe his conversion happened there, although it would be a gradual conversion because Paul would still have to learn. This is important. I've got a good analogy for grace. It, it comes from the song Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The author of Amazing Grace was a man named John Newton, and to call himself a wretch is very polite for what he really was. He was a slave trader, uh, very active in, in the slave trade, which simply means that he was the 18th century equivalent of a Holocaust camp guard. 
and yet he was converted in the 1740s to Christianity and continued as a slave trader for at least two more years after that before giving it up, before been studying for holy orders and becoming an Anglican clergyman. He still continued in that loathsome business which tells us that his conversion was the beginning of something, not the end of something. He still had to grow. You know, living in the South, we tend to think that uh, once you were saved, I, I, I suppose, it's a question, right? Are you saved? And it's a well-intentioned question that people ask us down here when they want to know if we, we think we're going to heaven when we die. But we tend to think of being saved as being a finished product. Paul always knew that being saved by grace was the beginning of a journey, not the end of anything. It was the beginning of a journey of, of growth and, and of heart and of wondering and of wisdom, so the gospel would, would have grace as its starting point, but it also had two more elements that you have to have in order to fully understand the word gospel. The other one is time, time. Now, like all Jewish people, uh, and Paul was one, he believed that time would end. The scriptures are very clear about this. The prophets would call it the day of the Lord. There would be a time when time is no more, and that's not a scary thing. Actually, the day of the Lord was a promise that when God wins, we win. The day of the Lord is a promise that one day all tears will be dried, all injustices will be righted. In God's time, everything that's wrong with the world will be made right with it, and we can rest in that assurance. That was the, that was the b- biblical promise. It's always been that. What Paul understood, though, is that in Jesus Christ... God would so love the world that he became his only begotten son, right? He gave his only begotten son to live into the world of Jesus. Because this happened in time, Jesus, through his own resurrection, had launched a rescue mission for us in time. So, yes, Paul believed that time would end one day, but now God had entered time and started something here and something now. We don't have to wait for heaven until we die. Uh, We can experience that here in time. Okay, here's an analogy that will get your mind around this. Um, on June the 6th, 1944, when, when Allied soldiers had the beachhead in Normandy, D-Day, right? So when Allied soldiers had the beachhead, World War II in Europe was effectively over. Now, it wasn't over. There would be another year of it. There would be more bloodshed, more horror, more loss, more, more pain, more sacrifice. But in effect, it was over. Same thing with Jesus entering the world in time. We know that there's a lot wrong with the world, but it's got a lot of heaven in it, and we can find it. Jesus called it the kingdom of God. So just remember that heaven is right around the corner. I had an experience that happened to me last week. Uh, I uh, had the opportunity to pray with a a friend living in a nearby nursing facility, and it was lovely. Prayed before she died at her deathbed, thanked her for her time at St. Luke's, thanked her for her kindness to me. And, and it, was a, it was an honor for her family to, to let me be there at that time. The next morning, I'm on my early morning run. I'm an early bird. I'm in a little, little back street uh, in the neighborhood near the church. And a car pulls up, and it's the woman's daughter. And she didn't know I was going to be out there. I didn't know she would be out there. And she said, I can't believe I'm seeing you here. Mama just died. We stopped the car. We prayed right there in the dark on a side street. I don't believe that was a coincidence. 
I believe that was the symmetry of the kingdom of God, who watches after us, who puts us where we're supposed to be, who opens doors of opportunity, but also closes doors and opens windows. I mean, all this, we can see that as we crash and bump around in our world, uh, God's hand is near. Even in this pandemic time, we can see God work and active in us. So look, I've, I've got two ideas of the gospel so far. First of all, we're saved by grace, which enables us to grow. And Paul knew this because he was a man with a terrible past. We don't have to have terrible pasts to be saved by grace, but we can be. What we can be are ordinary people who are willing to experience, right, the love of God and to to pay it forward as, as we grow in wisdom and in love and in confidence and in grace. Okay, that's the first idea. The second idea is this. God's in time right now. We don't have to wait for heaven until we die. And if we do this, if we do this, we'll be a family. We'll be different in the way that the Bible asks us to be different. Now, I'm thinking of analogies, uh, but I'm going to go back to Scripture on this one, and we'll go back to the world of Jesus. I want to read to you just a portion of Luke chapter 8, beginning with the, um, with the 19th verse. And this is, this is the part of the Gospels where Jesus is in his rock star period. They call it the Galilean Spring. He can't go anywhere without a crowd following him. They may not understand who he is and what he's doing, uh, but they can't get enough of it. The healings, the teachings, the miracles, you just can't get to him. And so Jesus' own family is trying to reach him, and Jesus says this. Luke chapter 8, verse 19. And then his mother and his brothers came to him, and they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside waiting to see you. But he said to them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. If we can live saved by grace, if we can look for God in time, it will make us a new family. During the second century uh, in the Roman Empire, a plague ravaged uh, that part of the world. It killed a third of the population and possibly the emperor as well, and everyone in these tightly packed Roman cities headed for the hills. In addition to knowing everybody's business, you also had poor sanitation, and so people were dying and dropping uh, pretty fast, and so everyone did what they could. Uh, They packed up and they left, except for the Christians. They stayed behind. As one contemporary writer would say, uh, they take care of their poor and they take care of ours as well. They stayed behind uh, with basic hydration and bathing and just basic nursing practices. It has been written that the Christians could have saved a third uh, or more of people that, that would have died otherwise and their neighbors were watching. The Christian movement began to grow exponentially after that mid-century plague uh, because of their witness. They They were saved by grace, looking for Christ in time, and they were a new family, and they were different. And so they took care of each other, and you can best believe the neighbors were watching. Well, that's the gospel that took root in this city called Corinth, and you can read all about it in Acts chapter 18. Remember, Acts is about Paul, but you can get into the mind of the Corinthians by reading the letters, and we've got two of them, First and Second Corinthians in the back of our Bibles. Hey, I'll show you a cool Corinth slide. This is, a, this is called a bema, which is a raised platform for a Roman magistrate to sit on, and these bricks that you're looking at are bricks that Paul would have looked at from his perspective when he was hauled before a proconsul named Gallio and hauled up on charges that he was perverting the Jewish faith. Now, this didn't fit within Gallio's interest, and so Paul was let go. But what's cool about this is you're you're looking at 
Acts chapter 18 from Paul's perspective. You're actually seeing something that he saw uh, from that distance. I just thought that was just really cool. I love to play a game where you can look at something uh, in real time and then also look at the Bible and you're seeing the same thing. What did Paul want to do in Corinth? Paul wanted the world of Jesus to be somewhere else. Paul wanted the world of Jesus to be in a far-off place. Paul wanted the world of Jesus to be in Greece. Paul wanted the world of Jesus to be in Philippi. Paul wanted the world of Jesus to be in Ephesus. Paul wanted the world of Jesus to be in Thessalonica. This is what these little letters in the backs of our Bibles mean. So I'll use another, another story to help us get our mind around what Paul was seeking to do. I tell every third grader in our church that the Bible is a library of books. It's a library. It's, it's not a a book to be read straight through. It's a library of text that you can read for different reasons. Some are law books, and some are uh, poetry, and some are history, and some are sagas, and some, you're right, and you can just look at different, some are reference books, and there's some books that, that just have different meanings. Some are books of wisdom. Okay, now, all that said, in that library of books, Ezekiel, for my money, is one of the most important people. Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel. The reason why I say this is because some 600 years before Jesus' birth, God's people were taken away into exile by the Babylonian king, which was the policy of the day. They thought they would never go home. And the reason why the exile was so sad for them is is they, they didn't know they would ever get to come back. They thought it was over forever. But God called a prophet out there not in their world, but, in, but out there in the Babylonian world. God called Ezekiel, who was just trying to get along just like them, in exile just like them, saying his prayers just like them. Their fear was that once they left Israel, they were cut off from God, that maybe God would stop speaking to them or perhaps had even been killed off when defeated by the Babylonian army. And yet Ezekiel stood as a living witness that God's world was where they were, out there. Corinth would become the world of Jesus. Well, that's how it happens, right? But let's look into their heads and see, you know, how they were thinking and how they made it happen. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll just read a couple of verses. Actually, just the very beginning. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 through 2. Let's see if we can start getting, getting into Paul's headspace a little bit. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. I'm fond of saying that things get right by us in Scripture because it either sounds like church or we just think it's supposed to be said or it sounds like the Bible and so we just, we just hear Paul say something about saints and we just move right on. But actually, that's a remarkable word for him to call the Corinthians saints. Now, that sounds like something you'd expect me to say in church. Or it's a churchy sort of uh, a term to give someone. But actually, to call them saints in their case, means something specific and remarkable, and I don't mean stained glass saints. I don't mean St. George and the Dragon. I don't mean St. James. I don't mean St. Paul. What I mean is um, chosen, set apart. Paul called them saints because they were set apart, just like Abraham. Paul called them saints because they were set apart, just like he had been set apart, and he didn't deserve it. They were set apart, which means that the old biblical story would continue in them. The world of Jesus would be their world. Uh, 
later Paul would write this masterwork called his letter to the Romans, which is really a reflection on everything he'd experienced in the three business trips that he took with the friends that he started with this movement called the gospel in all the cities with all the mishaps, all the imprisonments and beatings and just everything, everything that could go wrong for Paul. He looked back on it and he wrote this masterwork of theology to his friends in Rome before he promised to join them. And one of the points, the key points that he made in this magnum opus called Romans is this. Friends, Gentile friends living far, far away from the world of Christ. We are now grafted through Jesus onto their story. We're grafted onto a much older story. Now, we're starting to get into Paul's headspace when it comes to uh, the church that he started and the movement that he started and the people that he shepherded. But I gotta tell you, it was hard to live this way at least at first. All right, I want to show you a picture of an altar from Corinth. Now, it's a really pretty, pretty imposing structure there, and I'm sure it was remarkable when you could, when you could see it. I'm pretty sure it's an altar uh, dedicated to the emperor's family, which is something they would do in those days. They would have the gods, and then they would also worship the, what they called the genius of the of the emperor god and so so they would the, the the emperor's family would be deified such and basically it was a state religion now i say it's probably that altar because if it's not i can be forgiven because there are altars everywhere <laughs> so in addition to um in addition to having a hundred thousand people packed into into a tiny village, uh, you also had an altar literally everywhere. The, the, the city was covered in altered, altars and covered in that Roman pagan religion. And remember, everybody knows everybody's business. So if you start a movement that's based on grace and time and family and you stop doing that, people will see. Plus, in a world that had didn't have weekends, they just had sort of periodic festivals where you could take a break from living, uh, it would be common for them to have a, a supper associated with one of these altars. So it might be the supper of Apollo, it might be a supper to Diana, it might be a supper for the emperor. And it was here in this world with little altars everywhere, with everybody knowing your business, uh, that Paul took that idea and he, he innovated Paul was really smart this way. He, he, took, he took the gatherings where they would come together and they would share the same meal that Jesus shared with his friends with the bread and the wine on the night before he died and he asked them to do this in remembrance of me. He took that gathering and he called it the Lord's Supper. See, it was in this, it, it was in this Roman context that he used a new name. Instead of Apollo's Supper, he called it the Lord's Supper. And all that is all, all good and well, but just remember, when you're living close up with a lot of people, not only do you have the peer pressure to conform, and if you read First and Second Corinthians carefully, you can see some of that. You can see them slipping away and acting more like Romans and less like Bible people. And remember, I like to say the Bible says from page one to page 1,001, are you going to be different? You're going to be something else. Sometimes it's hard to be different with peer pressure. But also, it happens that culture will simply just seep in. You mean well. We all mean well, but sometimes we forget to be different, and we act like everyone else around us. This is exactly what happens in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I want to read just a few verses to you. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17 through 22. Now, I'm going to tell you that this passage makes no sense unless you live in the Corinthians world. So let's read it, and we'll see if we can understand it. Now, in the following instructions, I do not commend you, 
because when you come together, it is not for better, but for the worse. For, to begin with, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. Indeed, there have to be factions among you, for only so it will become clear who among you are genuine. When you come together, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper. We know where the word comes from now, right? The Lord's Supper. For when the time comes to eat, each one of you goes ahead with your own supper, and one goes hungry, and another becomes drunk. What? Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the word for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I commend you? In this matter, I do not commend you. I've already warned you. Without context, this makes no sense. But what you're looking at is a first century snapshot of Roman life. Okay, the Corinthians can be forgiven uh, for one thing. If they, if they get meals wrong, it's because poor people and rich people never ate before. Not, they've never eaten together before, so they're still learning. Remember what I said about grace? Grace is a beginning, but we can continue to grow together. We can continue to learn to love each other better together. We're not fully formed uh, people of faith. It's a lifelong journey of discovery. And so, so they can be forgiven for getting it wrong. Another thing that would, would happen is you, you're getting a snapshot of the way that they would eat. The wealthy would sit around a table, actually would recline around a table. They didn't have chairs. They would recline around a table. And let's say that might be 10 to 12 of those while the household servants would wait outside for the patrons to finish their meal and then they could eat whatever's left over. They were simply treating the Lord's Supper like they were always eating. The rich folks were eating first and then the poor people were sitting out in the courtyard hitting the bag of wine and they were becoming drunk while they were waiting for food. What Paul is simply saying is that's not the Lord's Supper. That's just supper. That's not the Lord's Supper. That's just what you do as Romans. That's just supper. We're called to be a family. Started by grace, finding God in time. It's the gospel. It changes us in the here and in the now. I'll see if I can bring this home. Paul wanted Corinth to be the world of Jesus. Paul, if he could look into into the crystal ball, would want St. Luke's to be the world of Jesus. God wants Birmingham, Alabama to be the world of Jesus. God wants St. Luke's to be a family apart. If we merely act like our city's best-run nonprofit, then that's what we'll be. If we merely act like a club, then that's what we'll be. If we merely act like a place to just see who we want to see on a Sunday morning, then that's who we will be. God dreams of more. God dreams of a place where we grow, where we find heaven under our noses, and we change the world. And that's what Paul set out to do. Amen. Now, maybe I've gotten you thinking of of those little books in the Bible in a new way uh, in the back. And I have a question that I want to leave with you for your own interactions with your family and your friends this morning. How is my world the world of Jesus. How's my world, the world of Jesus? Thanks again, friends. We'll see you next episode.